Okay, so for those of you who may not have joined us yet, um, this summer we are walking through God is Stranger by Krishkan Dia. Um, it is not required reading, but it's highly recommended reading. It's very good. Um, and so the, the kind of purpose of this book is all the ways that the Lord um, appears to us that in, in ways that we think are strange um, or in ways that we wouldn't expect. And how we, using um, radical and sacrificial hospitality for, for other strangers, can be a part of God's reconciling work for the, in the world. Um, so this week's is, these titles are always really funny, so Gideon and the Stranger, the God who turns up way too late, in which an internally displaced coward complains to a passing stranger, and we learn that the least likely person can change a nation or not. So, um, I want to first have us read really quickly just the beginning of this story. Um, some of you may be familiar with the story of Gideon. So we're going to be in Judges eleven sixteen for anybody who wants to go over there. Nope, we're not going to be in 11.16. That's Jephthah. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Sorry, 7.16. Nope, still not right. <laughs> 6.11. Okay, don't know where I got that. All right, so the call of Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of, at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. So let me set a little bit of context for where we are in the story of Israel. Um, so this is after the exodus from Egypt. The Israelites, of course, at first appear to be very faithful to the Lord, and then they get involved when they get into the land of Canaan, they get involved in all sorts of idolatry. And this cycle tends to run over and over again. Um, the Israelites turn away from the Lord. They get into a sticky situation. They plead to the Lord. The Lord rescues them. They're faithful for a small period, and then we do the whole thing over again. Um, so this is kind of like the third or fourth rotation <laughs> since they've arrived in the land of Canaan. And at this point, the Lord has said, enough is enough. And he's allowed the Midianites to come into the land of Canaan and take it over. Um, this is not a gentle takeover. The Midianites have this concept that they're going to rid the land of the Israelites by simply exterminating them. So they um, are intentionally starving the land. They're destroying the land. They're destroying any, any kind of food source. They've thrown all of the Israelites into captivity, and the remaining Israelites are, are living in hiding. They're living in caves. They're living in the forest. Um, so this is where we find Gideon. And in the first couple of 
verses here, we realize just how desperate the situation is because, so Gideon has wheat. And if you remember back to the story or forward to the story of Ruth and Boaz, the way that you thresh wheat, you put it out on a big floor um, and then you kind of shovel it and the chaff, what you don't want out of the wheat, rises up into the air and the wind blows it away. And what you have left is the wheat. So he doesn't have a wheat uh, a threshing floor that you would normally use to um, harvest the wheat or get the chaff out of the wheat. So he's trying to use a wine press. And I don't know if you guys have seen a wine press. It's like a big um, stone like wheel that rolls around in a, in a circle and it smashes the the wheat, or especially the grapes, I'm sorry, and then the wine kind of pours out of it. So it's not that we're super intimate with how this all works, but it is physically impossible to thresh wheat in a wine press. And this is what Gideon is attempting to do. Hey, come on in. We switch classrooms. <laughs> I was <just> like, <laughs> um, so it's physically impossible to do this. This is how desperate Gideon is. And he's trying to do it while the Midianites are kind of away. He's trying to do it so they won't see him um, because they'll destroy anything that he has. So this is kind of where we find him. So I kind of want you to picture this um, in, in today's sort of terms or in today's sort of world. So Gideon is desperate. He's hungry. His family is hungry. They have no land. They're living in hiding. And um, he comes out of hiding temporarily to try to do something that's physically impossible. That's how desperate he is. And this is where we find Gideon. Um, and this is where the Lord chooses to show up to him. So he chooses to show up to Gideon in the midst of the mundane. Hey, what's up? That's okay. <laughs> We're the kind of classroom where you can walk in late and announce it, and it's totally fine. Okay. Um, so... The Lord shows up to Gideon in the midst of the mundane. He doesn't show up to Gideon when Gideon is in the temple. He doesn't show up to Gideon when Gideon is having a you know, three-day walkabout in the wilderness. He shows up to Gideon in the midst of Gideon's desperation. Um, so this is a fun quote that I like from the book. God has a habit of connecting with us at the most mundane and unlikely times and places. I wonder how often we've missed God turning up to speak to us because somehow we have come to think that we can only find God in church. How many times has God sought to challenge, encourage, and inspire us and found that we weren't listening because we had our work mindset on? This is something in particular that I think I, was, I picked up as a kid as I was raised, that you are either operating, your life's journey sort of either operates on a mountain or in a valley, right? So you have these sort of mountaintop experiences uh, where the Lord, is, his presence is really clear and his communication is really clear and you really feel like you're one with the Lord. And then you sort of dive into these valley experiences where you're just sort of trudging through life and everything's miserable and you're always trying to get back up to the mountain. And this is a really unrealistic unre way to look at life, I think. Um, and it's not a very biblical way to look at life either. I think that the majority of life happens in the mundane. Um, the majority of life happens in the day-to-day. -day. This is where the Lord is present. This is where your memories are made, right? This is where your marriage is worked out. Um, just trying to get through your daily activities. And the, the idea that the Lord is not present in those times that you have to sort of trudge your way up to a mountaintop experience to sort of get into communication with Him or to get into a good place with Him is, is so impossible 
And yet, I feel like we spend a lot of our time sort of seeking that. Oh, well, I'm really distant from the Lord right now. I just need to sort of like go to church and read, you know, get into my back into my daily walk with Him. And not that those things aren't true, but that the Lord has the power to interact with us as much in the mundane as He does in our sort of mountaintop camp experiences. You know, I always think of a youth camp where you like come back from youth camp and you're like so on fire for the Lord, you know? And that, that, I think part of growing growing into an adult for me has been embracing the fact that the Lord can be as present to me as I'm like trying to balance my checkbook, which I don't actually do. Stephen does, um, but, <laughs> but the Lord can be as present to me when I'm grocery shopping as the Lord can be when I'm at camp or reading a really good book or spending quiet time with myself. The Lord operates just as much in the mundane with us as He does um, in the sort of really exciting or really horrible experience in our life. I think what really sets up and to set the tone for this is we often read where Gideon's at as if it's despair, but the habits that he's forming in this conversation with God came from somewhere else. This doubt, this despair was baby steps along the way of understanding how did he get here? How did he get to a place in which when someone challenges him or he's doing something, he's beaten down. We read it as it's bad luck. No, generationally, he's being beat down. If we listen to what Josh has been talking about in Philippians, Paul doesn't talk about the mountaintop experiences. Paul is rebuking people for things happening on a daily basis. And what we want to do today as we read through what happens with the interaction with the stranger with Gideon is take into context about Yes, there are some big, really unique things that happen. But if you listen to how he handles this, it's based out of practices, experiences, habits formed out of what he's done on a daily basis. But oftentimes we don't give credit to how we practice ourselves into excellence, practice ourselves into trusting. It's no different than marriage. I don't like cleaning. I don't like putting the dishes away. I do it because of something greater than that. Why do... Does the either why do the Israelites believe even though God is absent? Because they know they should. Is it easy? No. And what we're gonna see here is some of the effects of not looking at life as in the mundane, in the daily operations of who it is, but only looking to God when he can come in with, you know, an iron fist and solve all the issues, which the Israelites have frequently experienced over the last fifty to hundred years of their lives. So when God shows up to Gideon, he doesn't show up as God, right? He shows up as a stranger. It says that Gideon is sitting under the tree and a stranger walks up. Um, and so there, there's God hides his identity and there's kind of three results that happen because God chooses to approach Gideon as a stranger. The first is that Gideon is highly offended by what the stranger says to him. Um, we know this because the traditional greeting uh, for the Hebrews would have been, the Lord is with you, and then I would respond back, the Lord bless you. That's how any conversation would begin. Um, and so the, the stranger says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon, you have to consider where he is, right? He's hiding. He's trying to do something that's impossible because he's desperate enough to try it. He's starving. He and his family are starving. For someone to walk up and say to him, oh, mighty warrior, would be like me being in the middle of my day, like, buried in laundry, trying to get my work done, running around the house, 
like in my all my dirty clothes because nothing's clean, the dishes aren't clean, and someone walking in and being like, oh, Joanna Gaines, I see you. You know, like that's that would be offensive to me. I would be um, not too welcoming to that. So the fact that someone, that the stranger walks up to Gideon as he's like secretly trying to, and you also have to kind of think, Gideon is in hiding. So he's trying to get this done without anybody noticing. All of a sudden the stranger walks up to him and wants to have this open conversation in the middle of everything. Um, so he's not entirely welcoming to the conversation. So the, the stranger says to him, the Lord bless you, mighty warrior. And um, Gideon does not respond with the traditional greeting of the Lord be with you. He immediately launches into, well, if the Lord was with me, let me tell you what this would actually look like. If the Lord was with me, we wouldn't be in this situation. And so he's offended, highly offended. He takes the mighty warrior as sarcasm, and he immediately responds back with these really biting remarks about, well, listen, here, buddy, if you want to come into my life and tell me about how this should be different. Um, and so that's kind of the first result of the Lord appearing to him as a stranger. The second result is that um, Gideon, God gives Gideon the space to complain and be really rude. Um, he kind of, the Lord appears to him as a stranger so that, he, so that Gideon can, because we have things that we wrestle with a lot of the times. And we sometimes rarely recognize them in our own minds and our own hearts, much less like talk to God about them. Right, so if you're having doubts about the Lord, who's the last person that you're gonna to talk to about it? The Lord. <laughs> and so the fact that God distances himself, he appears as a stranger, he's giving Gideon the space to openly complain and wrestle with these doubts that he's having about the Lord. He's allowing him to have that sort of space, safe space to do that. Um, and then the last thing that happens is Gideon goes through all of these different complaints that he has about God. Well, if God had showed up, the Midianites wouldn't be here. If God had showed up, we wouldn't be starving. If God had showed up, yada, yada, yada. And the Lord, at the end of it, doesn't, he doesn't provide any explanation. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you about how this all fits into my perfect plan. And how you can't see this timing because, you know, you're human and I'm God. But let me show you all the, the way it works out. He doesn't give Gideon any explanation whatsoever. He simply says, if there's a change you want to see in the world, do it yourself. He says, go out with your own hand, with the strength of your own hand, and rescue your people from Gideon. I think that, that if I had heard that from a stranger, this is the last thing you want to hear, right? Like, I know if I call my mom with a problem, I'm going to get this response. If I just want to vent to somebody, I don't call my mom. You know, right? You guys know what this is like. It's because I call my mom and I'm like, listen to what the laundry lady at the cleaners did. And she'll be like, well, this is what you need to do. I'm like, mom, that's not my calling. <laughs> you know, this is the response that Gideon gets. He just wants a place to vent. He wants a place to be angry. He wants a place to be bitter. And the Lord says, listen, buddy, if you want to see change in the world, go out and do it yourself. I will be with you. He says at the end of the statement, go out with your own strength and take your people from the hand of Midian, and I will be with you. And so um, this is kind of the result of God uh, appearing to Gideon as a stranger. We're going to kind of come back to that in a minute. Your turn. <laughs> oh, why is he abnormal? Is that where we're at? Yes, that's where we're at. Oh. So <laughs> we're talking about, you know, what about Gideon being the one called is abnormal? Any thoughts on that? 
what stands out that he's someone that God is using as an agent for change? Is he qualified? No, I think that's why, because it's like this idea of like, as he says later on, is like, you know, I'm the lowest of the low in his own household. And, you know, he's almost like the least likely to get called. That's like almost why he gets called. I think too, I always think, you know, if you're gonna get called for something to do something big, if, some, if somebody gets called to do something big, it's because they've taken all these other little stair steps to get there, right? Like called, God called them to do something little and then something a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and then that really big thing. And so if you haven't seen that series of events where they've grown into that, you're like, wait, why would, why would they get called? They haven't had the practice yet. And you, like, you think about that as your, for yourself too. Like, oh, I haven't had my baby steps yet for that kind of calling. I think it's interesting, even in those baby steps that you you would think he had, he has blatant doubts of God. I mean, if you listen to what he says, why hasn't God done any of these things? He's not just subtly had questions about who God is. He has blatant doubts that he's going to act and do anything. He has anger toward God. I'm going to assume, I mean, I don't think you say some of those things and not have some of those anger. So as someone that's we look at, who, you know, you look at the prophets and other people who God's used in the Old Testament, oftentimes even Moses, he wasn't necessarily qualified, but he believed in who God was. He came around to that. But Gideon is someone who isn't princely, isn't a strategic thinker, because he doesn't see his opportunity to go do other stuff, not in a position to do it. Clearly there's no resources and he's having to hide what he is. And he doubts God's ability to use him as an agent. I think it's really unique to think about, often we think about, to your point, people who've been through baby steps, who've been put into a position to succeed, and yet God presents himself to someone who, in a lot of respects, isn't ready, isn't ready to become an agent of their own, to go out and do, to do change. And I think, to me, it's one of the the few stories that I ever really thought about, because we always thought, you know, God can use anyone, and he can, but I think... For me, I never opened up the perspective of anyone truly means anyone. And the bottom end of that spectrum are those who aren't ready, those who have open doubts, those who I would never even guess. I think I grew up in a place that anyone is someone who can at least check you know, three-fourths of the boxes and get a C plus. But the reality is like God can present himself and use anyone. And we don't have the context of other people, but you have to assume that at, the, at this point in the story, who's going to follow him? I mean, he knows all the self-doubts of himself. How am I going to be able to go and call out someone to follow me? And I think it's really interesting that we don't always take into account that in the story. Because what Sam was talking about earlier, we learned it in Bible classes. Gideon is this herald of someone who has faith and can test God. But... I don't think we always read the beginning of it to think about where he came from and the doubts that if I was in his position and I was looking for a job where I was a year ago and in these places where nothing is happening, nothing is going the way I wanted to go, and God says, hey, go do it yourself, would I recognize that he thinks I'm capable of doing it? Or would I hear, hey, fix it yourself? 
because I don't think we know God's not going to put anyone in a position that they're not going to be able to succeed in some capacity. Well, I think part of that too is that God chooses those people because then that overwhelmingly more people around them are going to see that, oh, that must have been God intervening because that person was not going to do that themselves. And so it's almost more of showing that it is more God than that mm-hmm. person. So, I mean, Gideon's not doing himself, or Gideon wasn't chosen because of what he was or wasn't. It's more, I think, just that because through him, it's just makes sense God would be more visible through that than he would be if you pick the biggest and brightest and best. Then it's like, oh, yeah, that person's awesome. So that's why it succeeded, not because mm-hmm. God was there, but if this lowest and the low person succeeded, oh, man, God must have been involved because otherwise there would have been no chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like a backhanded compliment. Like, wow, the Lord's really working through you. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. His glory is shining right now. Um, yeah, and I think some of the things that we miss about Gideon, too, in this story are that, like, Gideon's really, he's a rude dude. Like, he's just rude. He's, he's angry. He's bitter. He's narrow-minded. He's not necessarily open to the fact that the Lord is calling him. Um, he is pretty stuck in his ways, right? These are not the kind of people that we think of being open or even hearing the Lord when he calls. And so I think that this is really interesting. Kind of, kind of It plays into the next piece of this, which is um, compared to us, I, I feel like Christians throughout the centuries, and compared to the other people in the Bible, Gideon receives an incredible amount of specific and direct instruction. Right, like the Lord, um, after the story, or after the beginning where the Lord appears to him as a stranger, and when he says to Gideon, go and do this with your own strength and I will be with you, Gideon sorts of starts to pick up like, oh, (laughs) I may not be talking to a stranger here. And so he goes and he um, prepares a sacrifice and he realizes that he's been talking to the Lord this whole time, so he prepares a meal for the Lord. And after this, um, the Lord tells him, okay, here's your first job. I want you to go and destroy a, um, uh, it's not a temple, it's a, a pole of Baal. I want you to go and destroy it. This is actually something that belongs to Gideon's father. His father built this thing. Um, so Gideon, his first job, this person who is overwhelmed with bitterness and anger, his first job is to go and confront his own family, right? <laughs> like, ouch, thanks God. You know, the, the, so much of what we come into um, as adults is built through the childhoods that we have. So much of the stuff that we carry with us as adults is built through the childhoods that we have. And so the Lord secretly knows that for Gideon to be the hero, uh, to be the tool that the Lord needs him to be, the first thing that needs to happen is that Gideon needs to confront his own family, um, which is sometimes terrifying to think about. You can more easily have a difficult conversation with strangers than you can with your own family. So this is the first thing that that Gideon does. He goes, he destroys um, the pole of Asherah. And um, his father, in the end, ends up seeing sort of the error of his ways and stands up for Gideon when the locals come after Gideon. And he saves Gideon's life. And then Gideon says, okay, I haven't received yet enough clear instruction. So the Lord, Lord, if you, this is really what you want me to do with my life, I'm going to, and he has the Lord walk through a series of tests. Um, He puts out the fleece. The first time the fleece is supposed to be wet and the ground is supposed to be dry. That's what happens. He, he's like, okay, that wasn't quite enough. Let me put it out one more time. Let's do the opposite. So the Lord remains really patient with Gideon, um, despite the fact that Gideon puts him, essentially makes the Lord jump through hoops. And um, the Lord continues to give him really specific 
and really clear instruction that we see in other parts of the Bible and that we often see in our own lives is completely lacking. So I want to just kind of wrestle with this for a while. Why? What do you think it is about Gideon that the Lord chooses to be so clear and so present as he's trying to train Gideon up? It's okay if we don't come up with an answer because I don't have one either. And I guess you're saying as in compared to other scenarios, yeah. it hasn't been as clear? Yeah. And in our own lives. I feel like sometimes we get maybe an inkling of an answer or maybe in hindsight we're able to see that the Lord was clearly directing our paths, but we so in the moment we so often don't get that clear direction. Um, so I have a hypothesis. One of the defining characteristics of Gideon's personality is that he has an extreme inferiority complex. We see it from the very first words out of his mouth. I am the least of my family. My family is the least of our tribe. Our tribe is the least of all 12 tribes. Um, and if you've ever struggled with self-doubt, you know how quickly, and we're going to see this particularly strongly in the end of the story, you know how quickly self-doubt can pendulum swing into kind of narrow-minded absolutism, right? Like we go from, um, I'm not sure if I can do this, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to do this, to, okay, I'm doing this, but if anybody questions me, we're going to have a showdown. I'm not going to take any opposition, I'm not going to take any input. That's just kind of how that, that characteristic can swing back and forth. And if you've ever dealt with someone or loved someone who has extreme self-doubt, you probably know that. Um, and so if we, if we look at the way the Lord speaks to Gideon, and then later the battle tactics that the Lord requires of Gideon, he spe is specifically addressing this piece of self-doubt in Gideon because he knows, again, in order for Gideon to be the tool that he needs him to be, this is the first thing that's got to go. So they're preparing for battle, right? And the Israelites are already significantly outnumbered. Gideon's decided that he's going to do this thing. So the, the Israelites are already significantly outnumbered. And the Lord comes to Gideon and says, you know what? There's too many people here. I need you to get rid of about half of them. And Gideon's like, great. So he gets rid of half of the warriors. Um, and then the Lord comes back to him and says, there's still too many people here. I need you to get rid of half of them again. So he ends up with 300, and we know that there are at least 15,000 Midianites that are about to march into battle. If you have an inferiority complex, and you are told to march into battle with 300 people against at least 15,000, this is going to be a serious struggle. Um, for anyone, but particularly for someone who is crippled by self-doubt. If you are in charge of 300 souls walking into battle against a huge army, who also um, is technologically, the Midianites used camel warfare. Um, that seems a little primitive to us now, but at the time, that was technologically profound. So they have, um, they are advanced beyond what the Israelites have as far as weaponry and tactics, and they also have significantly more people. 
And so the Lord is going to specifically address this inferiority complex that Gideon has. I think this is why he requires these specific tactics from Gideon. Um, and in the middle of this, we get this really interesting juxtaposition. So I'm going to read from 7.13. We get a glimpse of somebody who is literally the exact opposite of Gideon. It's just like five verses. So what has happened is Gideon, that's night before the battle, Gideon is still struggling with self-doubt. So he decides he's going to sneak into the Midianite camp. And he's going to kind of spy around and see what they're up to. So he's in the middle of this when he says, When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. I dreamed. Sorry, there's a lot of beholds in here. Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so hard that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So in the middle of um, kind of walking through this story of Gideon, who is an Israelite, who has the favor of God, who has been clearly spoken to by God in many different formats and in many different ways, um, who is still struggling with self-doubt, we have this snapshot of a foot soldier in the Midianite camp. So he's the opposite of Gideon in every way. He's a foot soldier. He's not in charge. Um, he's a pagan. He has little to no knowledge of the Lord of Israel. He's technically on the winning team by all accounts, right? He, there's clearly, by all sort of earthly accounts, the Midianites are about to destroy the Israelites. So he's on the winning team. Um, he has one brief and vague encounter with the Lord. He has this dream. And he immediately believes. He immediately says, this is none other than this, the Lord of Israel. This is none other than the hand of Gideon coming to defeat the Midianites. It's just five verses. And the story of Gideon takes place over three chapters. We wrestle with self-doubt for three chapters. And in five verses, we get one person who has one vague encounter with the Lord immediately believes. And this is, how we, this is what we have to compare Gideon to. And yet it's something about hearing this. So Gideon hears this man tell the story. And this is the confidence that he needs to go back to the Israelite camp and prepare for battle and have the faith that they're going to win. So it's not the overwhelming and repetitive reassurances of the omnipotent God that gets Gideon where he needs to be to fight this battle. It is the word whispered in a tent of a strange pagan who doesn't even know that Gideon is listening. And I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what that means for us, right? That the Lord um, sometimes backs away a little bit because we get used to the way, or we think we get used to the way he talks to us. We think we get used to his promises. We think we get used to who he is and what we can expect from him. And so he backs away a little bit, and he lets a stranger speak more divine truth in the way that Gideon was willing to hear it than the Lord could make him understand. He lets a person who should have no revelation, by all accounts and purposes, of the Lord speak more truth into Gideon's life than the Lord was able to speak into his life. Um, let me read this quote real quick. How strange is it that in a story where Gideon has doubted God's presence and power, despite a great deal of evidence, 
This Midianite soldier with his short dream has no doubt at all of either. Sometimes those of us who think we know God and how he works may find ourselves like Gideon, missing what God is really like or really doing because of our preconceived ideas and expectations. Sometimes God needs to turn up as a stranger to provoke us into seeing him afresh. And sometimes it is the most unlikely strangers who encounter God more clearly than us and can thus help us finally grasp the truth about who he is. Does anybody have a reaction to that? Any thoughts? Personal experiences? Okay. So, um, this is where we come to the part where the Bible is really difficult because this is where the story should end, right? Gideon, um, he is 300 men destroy the Midianites. He and the Lord destroy the Midianites. The Lord destroys the Midianites. And um, this is where the story should end, but this is where we have to wrestle with the idea that the, the Bible is not, um, <laughs> the Bible is not a bunch of t stories tied up with a bow that all have a moral and all have a clear, oh, this is what we should learn from this. Here's your three points. They all start with a P, you know? Uh, <laughs> and that's not the book that we're reading here. The book that we're reading here is, historical, or if you want to argue, argue semi-historical, accounts of events that happen. And so we get the full story of Gideon, not the pretty part. The next phase of Gideon's life is not so great. Um, and this is where we kind of see that personality shift. He goes from a place of self-doubt, the pendulum sort of swings all the way over, and now we enter into a place of that single-minded absolutism. Um, this is the way I'm going to do it. And if you have any issues with that, I'll just go through you. So what happens after the battle? Gideon decides that um, throwing the Midianites out of Israel is not enough. He chases them down with his 300 soldiers, 15,000 of them. Uh, 15,000 is the number of the Midianites that survived the initial battle. So like I said earlier, there's more than 15,000. 15,000 is what's left and the two Midianite kings. He decides to chase them down. So they've already, um, they've already chased them out of Israel, and he decides to exit the boundaries of Israel and continue to chase them down. So this is, this is beyond just pushing the Midianites out. This has now become something that is personal for Gideon. This has now become something that, this is a revenge trip, right? We learn in the story that Gideon's two brothers are killed during the battle. And so this, like I said, this becomes something that is very personal and very, um, this bitterness that he has in the beginning of the story, we're seeing this traced all the way through to the end. So he chases uh, the 15,000 down and they, the, his army arrives at a village called Succoth. And um, they, they're in the process of chasing these guys down, but they need to rest overnight. And so they arrive in this village and they say, give us, um, open up your doors, let us in, let us rest here for the evening. And the village leaders don't believe that this tiny Israelite army has actually defeated the Midianites. And out of fear of retribution from the Midianites for giving these people hospitality, they turn the Israelite army away. Um, so this happens at two villages. It happens at Succoth and it happens at Peniel. Peniel. And um, Gideon places a, essentially a curse on the two villages. And he says, 
once I have tracked down the Midianite army and killed the kings, I'm coming back here and I'm, I'm killing all of your males that are of age, um, which he ends up doing. He tracks down the two kings. He actually orders his 12-year-old son to behead both the kings. Um, his 12-year-old won't do it out of fear or because the 12-year-old doesn't typically want to behead kings. Um, and so Gideon does it with his own hand. He's actually taunted into doing it by the king. So the king says, you're passing this over to your 12-year-old. You're not brave enough to do it. And so Gideon responds to that by doing it himself. The Israelites then uh, turn around and say, and this is how we know the Israelites didn't quite learn their lesson. Um, they turn around and say, we want you to become our king. We want you and your sons, uh, we want you to set up a dynasty, essentially. We want you to become our king. And... Gideon doesn't want the responsibility of being king, so he turns down the responsibility, but he, he demands a reward for his work. So he demands one earring from every one of the Midianites that were killed. Um, so Midianites, were, they wore heavy gold jewelry. Um, so he walks away with, Stephen doesn't like it when, I, when we turn Old Testament amounts of money into modern day, but I feel like this is somewhat helpful. He walks away with about three quarters of a million dollars. Um, that's just kind of the estimate of what it would cost. You can get mad at me later. Um, <laughs> and he takes this gold and he forms it into a golden ephod. Now an ephod is a, uh, a tunic that only the priests, only the Levites are allowed to wear. So he turns this into a golden ephod and he puts this on display in his home. And the Israelite people turn around and begin to idolize the golden ephod. It becomes a point of worship. People come to his home to worship him and to worship the ephod. So he, he begins the story by leading his people out of idolatry. And he ends the story by coming full circle and pulling them right back into idolatry. And this is kind of the messy piece of Gideon that we never get. <laughs> and the messy piece of Gideon that we don't often wrestle with. This is where we see that um, those pivotal struggles that we have, those pivotal sins that we have, forgetting it was self-doubt, they, they can so quickly become the peace by which we destroy ourselves. When we allow those things to speak louder than the Lord's presence in our life, and the Lord was clearly present in Gideon's life, loudly present, um, yet Gideon allowed that self-doubt to continue to speak to him in a way that completely altered. Um, he went from being a hero, having done almost little to nothing, to being someone who ended up actually leading his people further into the sins uh, that he originally ended, had intended to free them from. So Stephen and I were kind of talking on the way here, and we were, we were like, not that every story has to have like a pretty moral and everything, but we were like, we have no idea how to tie that into like this part of the lesson. We have no idea what that is supposed to mean for us or um, what that is supposed to say to us in a sort of modern context about the Lord and about the way he speaks to us and about the way he appears to us as a stranger. And so I just kind of wanted to open that up to you guys. Do you guys have any response back to how Gideon's life sort of ended? Um, it's more of a testimony of, of humans other than God, rather than God. Yeah. Like, you know, we make, we're on 
the mountain high, and we're doing really, really good, and then we go to the valley, like you talked about, and then we do really stupid, bad things. But God is constant, you know. He never left Gideon, but Gideon just made dumb decisions. So I think it's more of a testimony of humans rather than. Well, I think that, like, maybe he, Gideon himself, never really came out of the valley. He was just mm-hmm. riding on God's presence. And then he did what he needed to do with God present. He was actually personally never out of the valley. I think it's back and to so that, as yeah. soon as like he didn't feel like God was there, he went right. He was yeah. back to his valley. Like yeah. he wasn't transformed by the experience. Well, that's right. what's going back yeah. to that mundane. Where if you look at what Gideon did, we see that he operated on mountains and valleys. But what he practiced on daily, the doubt within himself that he's inferior. It wasn't about he practiced himself into a place where even if he tried to hit a mountaintop. He didn't have the skill sets internally. And those aren't things that God can help infer, but those are things that are personally upon us to attempt to trust or to try to practice. And we see that even in all of that, he never fully bought in, even though God gave him, like Sam said, some of the most open acknowledgement and telling of, hey, go forth and do this. And I mean, very rarely even in the New Testament or especially even in the Old Testament do people get that blatant outside of Moses and probably Elijah telling of what to go do. So which is, to me, it's just one of those we don't always take into account like what we bring into it and how we live our lives outside of those high moments that God does experiences with us does affect how we can interpret those mountains and valleys that are inevitable to come in life. But life is truly lived in between those. That's all we have for you guys this week. Um, do you lead us out in prayer? Yep. You pray for us. Any prayer requests before you head out? Lord, just uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come together to uh, spend time with fellow brothers and sisters to talk about you, to attempt to understand you, to grow closer to you. Lord, just thank you for this opportunity. Lord, please help us to have a great rest of the day. Thank you for all that you've given us. In Jesus' name.